Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to Family Stories, the podcast written by you, our listeners. This week's Family Stories take us from the horrors of the Italian campaign to mapping the war on through a trumpeter's time at Bletchley Park and seeing Coventry burn. We begin this week with this from Liz Coward. Dear Alan James, this is the story of William Earl, who sadly passed away last year. William was a nursing orderly in the 214th Field Ambulance. In September 1943, he took part in the invasion of mainland Italy. This is his account. We were due to go in at zero hour plus 25. As the time approached, we sailed as close as possible to Sugar Beach. When we stopped, the ramp splashed down and Major Dougal shouted, Go! There were 18 of us, led by Sergeant Abley. We jumped into the water with our first aid kits and extra supplies. We sprinted onto the beach as fast as we could. The moment we cleared the bridgehead, Sergeant Abley yelled, Dig in! Around us, infantrymen were crashing to the ground, dead or injured. We had to wait until there was a lull in the naval bombardment before we could go out. The moment there was, Sergeant Abley told us to deal with what wounded we could see. Some men just needed a bit of help to get up and moving again. If someone had a leg wound, we'd use his field dressing to make a tourniquet to stop the bleeding. If the wound was too big, we'd rip his trousers and use whatever came to hand. For those that couldn't walk, Frank and I would link our wrists together to make a chair. As long as a man could put his arms around us, we could move him out of danger. Sometimes, the men were in such a dangerous position we had to get them somewhere safe before we could even start treating them. Once we'd done that, we'd leave them and find another casualty. We eventually ended up at a farm, and Frank and I sheltered in a trench between two rows of plum tomatoes and grapes. We feasted on them as we watched the landing craft come in. We saw our first three tanks arrive. As soon as they landed, the Germans knocked them out. Bang, bang, bang. We had three, now we had none. After bitter fighting, Salerno was secured and the 5th Army advanced north. We trudged towards Naples with an army of bedraggled refugees behind us. 
They had fled south when the Germans occupied the north, and as we pushed up, they followed. I had great sympathy for them, because they were in such a poor state. We always tried to give them what medical aid we could, but our first priority was to our own men. For some men, though, it was heaven. Everywhere they looked, there were young Sophia Lorenz, who would do anything for a bar of soap or a bit of chocolate. Frank was horrified by the thought of having sex with anyone other than his wife. I thought it was natural, and we had been away for over a year. Frank's influence steadied me, so we were very gentlemanly and just chatted to those who knew some English. By now, the cold and wet Italian autumn had set in. The higher they climbed, the colder and more exposed they became. Sickness was rife. William caught shingles. He spent three weeks recovering. It recurred within the month with tragic consequences. It was the 27th of December. We went forward after a five-day rest. We were told the infantry had been engaged in a fierce battle and there were lots of casualties in no man's land. Frank and I were asked to join a 12-man mission to rescue them. We were due to leave at midnight, but I collapsed three hours before. Frank insisted I see the M.O. I was examined and told I couldn't go. I was a weak link. Frank left to join the other men and I was replaced. They left as planned at midnight. None returned. They were caught in the middle of a German counterattack. Six were killed instantly, including my replacement. Frank and five others had been taken prisoner. I took it very badly. Not only had my closest friend been captured, my replacement had died. The thought that he died so I could live upset me very deeply and I became depressed. The officers could see how affected I was and decided I needed a mental rest. William was sent to a convalescent home in Sorrento. Four weeks later he was discharged and with the 214th sent to the Anzio beachhead. The only cover we had was in little gullies and we were finally able to establish a casualty collecting post but it was under constant threat. With Frank gone I couldn't play chess to calm my nerves. I just crouched there quietly, ready to brace myself against whatever came my way. There were few lulls during which we could collect the wounded. It was agreed that twice a day, once in the morning, after the night firing, and once in the evening before it got dark, two orderlies would stand up in the gully holding a big red cross. We'd stay like that until the Germans noticed and stopped shelling. Collecting the wounded was one problem. Evacuating them was another. It was so muddy that we couldn't get our ambulances up. Luckily, the American jeeps could travel over any ground, so we adapted them to carry stretchers. Once, I had an English officer on one side and a German officer on the other. The route back was treacherous, so we took it in turns. I was lucky not to be hit, but a lot of our men were killed or injured. The whole situation was terrifying and we were angry. We'd heard rumours that the day after the Americans landed, two officers drove a jeep to Rome without opposition. We blamed the Americans for their decision not to advance. We were pushed back onto the beach. We became dangerously intermingled with the infantry. Almost every second men were being killed or injured. Being jammed together also created many more casualties because a shell would find not one, but a group of soldiers. It was a terrible strain. We could only protect ourselves by lying low during the day. It was mainly at night that we were able to move about freely and collect the wounded. At one point... I could look over my shoulder and see the sea. We thought we were facing another Dunkirk. We'd lost about half our men by this time, and those of us left standing were working almost non-stop. There was nowhere to rest because there were no safe areas. Burying the dead became a luxury. When we finally got aboard our troop ship, we held onto the rails and said, Come on, get us out of here, please. Please start the engines and get us away from this hellhole. 
It was a great shout of relief when we drew away from the shore. I don't know how, but somehow we had managed to survive. That was from Liz Coward. Our next story comes from Jonathan Wax. My father was born in London in 1911. His parents were Jewish and both originally from Russia. As Europe slowly headed to war, he worked as a solicitor and started to be engaged in the world of theatre as a translator for French farces. Once war was declared in September 1939, he decided to volunteer and tried to apply for a wartime commission in the Royal Navy, but met the immutable bureaucracy of the services. He was told that as both of his parents had been born in Russia, he couldn't be considered for commissioned service in the Navy. As he didn't have an uncle, Dickie, serving in the Navy to fight his case, he returned to being a lawyer and decided to wait for the government to call on him. In July 1941, he was called up and joined the Royal Army Service Corps. At his basic training, he was the old man of the platoon as he was already 30. His first posting was to an RASC company in Bournemouth. When his company commander learned he was a qualified lawyer, he was appointed to be the company clerk, where his duties were extended to include advising and working on his company commander's divorce. One Friday, he was called into the office by his OC, who asked him if he was going to London for the weekend. He said he was. The OC said he'd just learnt that all leave was to be cancelled later that day, but if he went now, then all would be okay. So my father thanked him and left for London. That weekend, he bumped into a pre-war friend in Pall Mall, and they discussed their respective wartime employment. His friend was going to join an intelligence unit based in Oxford and asked Dad if he'd be interested in joining him. Dad said yes, and was told he should expect to join, probably as an SO3. A few weeks passed, and then his OC called him into his office. He was holding a transfer document and asked Dad if he had any knowledge of it. Dad said he didn't, and the OC reluctantly accepted it. It was a posting to the 161st Officer Cadet Training Unit of the Royal Military College. He joined the OCTU in December 1942 and was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Intelligence Corps on the 2nd of April 1943. He joined his new unit, the Inter-Services Topographical Department, based in Oxford. The ISTD had been formed in 1940 as an inter-service expansion of the Naval Intelligence Division. During the war, they produced 31 handbooks covering 58 volumes. As well as mapping data, they included information on local government, hygiene and pest, bridges, port capacities, railway gradient profiles and more. Dad used to tell me he worked on the Italy handbook, which ran to four volumes. The quality of topographical data, including maps, available to the Allies was very poor. They looked at every possible source of data, and in 1942 even put out an appeal on the BBC for people to send in copies of photographs that could potentially help. As for Italy, they soon realised that the pre-war Italian tourist maps they had were highly unreliable. ISTD worked closely with the RAF Central Interpretation Unit and they provided current and accurate photographs which were used to produce accurate maps. Dad used to say they were one of the few parts of the armed forces that appreciated the delay caused by the lengthy German defence of Monte Cassino as it gave them time to catch up with and get ahead of the Allies' advance up Italy. As the war in Europe ended, 21st Army Group became the Army of Occupation, and the task of administering and rebuilding Germany began. 
Dad's legal training was noticed and in June 1945 he was appointed at SO2 Courts and Ministry of Justice Control Branch of the Army Legal Division. In July he was attached to the Central Commission Germany and in August arrived in Hamburg. His main role was as a judge in the military courts in Schleswig-Holstein, but he also took on vetting Germans who were to be appointed to the re-established German law courts. His stories mainly involved his off-duty adventures. He requisitioned a car, a Mercedes-Benz coupe that had been built for the Krupp family, and would spend his weekends in Denmark, where the quality and quantity of food was far better than in Germany. In June 1946, he relinquished his appointment as assistant controller, legal division. He left the army in August and proceeded to have a career in the theatre as a literary agent and producer. He rarely spoke of his war service. However, in 1970, we moved to Ramsbury, a small village in Wiltshire. Somehow, it became known that he was Major Wax, and for the next ten years would participate in the Remembrance Sunday Parade, and then retire to the British Legion Bar. That was from Jonathan Wax. And Jonathan, I've got to say, I've got those four volumes about Italy, and very useful they have been too. Our next story comes from Robin Brasher. My father, Tony, wasn't especially interested in talking about the war. It was his post-war service as an army musician that he really enjoyed and was happy to reminisce about. Tony had a happy childhood in Barnet, dominated by music. In the late 1930s, he discovered jazz on his crystal set, which became a lifelong passion. On the outbreak of war, he joined the precursor of the Air Training Corps and left school to become an apprentice radio engineer. Most importantly... This enabled him to buy a trumpet with his first week's wages. Several months later, a lad at the ATC wanted to form a jazz band, and Tony was in. So followed four years of gigs and dances as the band grew and got better. For some rehearsals, they were joined by a young drummer called Peter Sellers. With other apprentices, Tony was a member of the factory's fire brigade, and it was this that probably saved his life. On the 23rd of August, 1944, having just finished a night shift as fire brigade team leader, he was a little late for work, when, at about 8am, a V1 hit the factory, including where his workbench was. 33 people were killed, and about 200 injured. In October 1944, his king and country finally decided they needed him, and he was enlisted as a territorial in the Royal Signals and posted to Special Communication Unit No. 3 in the Buckinghamshire countryside. SCU-3 was based at Hanslope Park, an outstation of Bletchley Park which monitored enemy radio communications, especially from the Abwehr, for MI6. This explains why Tony's army record shows that for most of his time with SCU-3, he was not paid by the army. Accommodated in Nissen huts, Tony's first job was to fill a mattress with straw to make up his bed on a wooden frame with wire netting. He said he knew what was going on at Hanslope Park, but essentially it was just like being at the factory. He was still an apprentice, but working in a Nissen hut in battle dress. His job was building and repairing radio receivers. I'm not sure how much of a trained soldier he was. Fortunately, military duties were few. Fire picket on the main gate, and once escorting a prisoner with fixed bayonet. They were invited to a dance at Woburn Abbey by some wrens, but, with lots of American servicemen present, stood no chance with the girls. He couldn't manage without music, and returned from home one leave with his trumpet, this reached the ear of the unit adjutant, who ordered him to form a dance band. 
Eventually, he found a drummer and a pianist who could play three tunes. With hard work, they increased his repertoire to six. At dances, they repeated numbers over and over, hoping the dancers would be too engrossed or inebriated to notice. His break came when a good friend from his Barnet jazz days was called up to the Bedfordshire and Hertfordshire Regiment and posted to the band, one of the few line infantry bands at full strength. He put in a word for Tony as a dance band drummer, guitarist and trumpet player, and he was soon offered a place. This did not go down well with the SCU3 adjutant, who thought the Royal Signals Band would be much more appropriate. When Tony insisted he wanted to go to the Beds and Hearts, he was given a stark choice. He must sign on as a regular. He did, for 12 years. On a Sunday, in early January 1946, in full marching order with kit bag, rifle and trusty trumpet, Tony arrived at Kempston Barracks for a new chapter in his military life as a bandsman in the Bedfordshire and Hertfordshire Regiment. But that is another story. That was from Robin Brasher. Our next story comes from Richard Young. My paternal grandfather was in the Somerset Light Infantry in the First World War and years later was assigned to the reconstruction effort in Germany after the Second. He never spoke about what happened to him in either conflict. He was a chemical and mechanical engineer by trade, but I don't even know what he did in the Second World War. By the time I was old enough to think about asking, he was dead. I didn't want to make the same mistake with my maternal grandfather. He'd been in a reserved occupation for 1939-45, running the family foundry business in Birmingham, which was given over to military production. But he did spend a chunk of the war doing firewatch duties. We only chatted for one afternoon about his war, and there wasn't that much to tell, but he did recall the helpless horror he felt the night Coventry was firebombed. From the rooftop where he was stationed, the whole horizon to the south was lit bright orange, he said. It left a deep impression on him, and was a reminder, especially as I think about the people in Ukraine at the moment, that you don't need to see action to feel dread and in awe of war. And that was from Richard Young. Our next story comes from Sharon Lynch. At the start of the war, my Irish grandfather deserted from the Irish army and travelled to the UK as he wanted to play his part in protecting the UK. He used his brother, who looked very much like him as a decoy. On arrival in the UK, he joined the Royal Military Police and was sent to war. Sadly, he was captured by the Japanese and made a prisoner of war. When he was captured, he buried a gold watch he had bought for my grandmother. When the war was over, he uncovered the watch and gave it to my grandmother on his return. I had numerous documents relating to his time as a prisoner and the awful torture they endured, which are now in the RMP Museum. My grandfather was the kindest man I have ever known, despite the awful ordeal he endured. I think of him and his bravery every day. Sweet dreams, my darling granddad. That was from Sharon Lynch. Thank you, Sharon. That's all for this episode. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the show, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com or leave it on the members site under the Family Stories tab. A reminder, that's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Bye for now. <laughs>